Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's Twain. Uh, yes, we come to the second of our Harry's Twain, probably the best known monarch in English history. I mean, obviously, we've got recent ones like Victoria and Queen Elizabeth, but uh, looking back, Henry the Eighth is the monarch that everybody knows, partly because he is studied regularly at schools. The Tudors seem to be the one consistent thing that is taught in history, often at the expense of the rest of our history. But he was such a big figure, literally a big figure. By the time he died, he was huge. He had a 52-inch waist. But he sums up our idea of what a king is or was. And everybody has an image of him. You say Henry VIII, they can picture him. Usually in later life as this big stout towering figure this monolithic monster in many ways and he's always wearing tights and that hat and the really interesting thing is you can look at any pictorial representation of henry the eighth from the time he is always wearing that hat that same hat the black hat with the white trim and the feather in it it's like his sort of superhero look so whether he, he said look this is what i look like and if you want to paint me you've got to put the hat in it the hat, the famous hat. So everybody has this idea of Henry, and he sits at a very important point in history. We're halfway between William the Conqueror and Charles III. Not just halfway in time, because we're now in the early 1500s, halfway between 1000 and 2000, but also numerically, if you count the monarchs, and halfway through our Willy Willy Harry Stee rhyme. And in many ways, Henry VIII is this pivotal figure. 
as we transition from the medieval world into the modern world. We've left the Middle Ages behind, the era of knights and castles and chivalry, and we're into the Tudor period, where people dress differently, they behave differently, they think differently, they worship their God differently, they become Protestants. So there's a big change in what it feels like, I guess, to be English, because not only do we have the Reformation, we also have the Renaissance, and Henry is often called our first Renaissance king. Now, a Renaissance is one of those terms that people bandy around, and I can't guarantee that everybody knows exactly what it means. And, you know, this series is basic history. It's a primer, if you like. I'm trying to explain everything in a sort of old-fashioned, middle-aged white man telling you things way. So I will assume that you don't know what the Renaissance is. If you are a Renaissance expert, you can skip this bit. But it is important and it is interesting because it has such a big effect on the way Henry thinks and the way that he acts. So what's been happening through Europe in this period, through the Middle Ages? There's been a lot of disruption. At the beginning of the 14th century in the early 1300s, we had the Great Famine, which wiped out a lot of people right through Europe. And later in the same century, we have the Black Death. And so by this point, something like a half the population of Europe has been wiped out. So there's a huge demographic shift. And this leads to unrest. It leads to people questioning their beliefs that they've had for hundreds of years. So we have social unrest, and it's the first time the peasants are able to ask for an increase in wages because the workforce has been diminished. So supply and demand. If you want people to come and work on your land, you're going to have to pay more than the lord next door is offering to pay the peasants. And so this leads to the peasants' revolt in England, but there are similar revolts through Europe. And this is the rise of the peasant class. It's the rise of the bourgeoisie, the middle class. And it starts to erode that sort of trust in the godlike monarchy. But the Black Death and the famine and the problems of the 14th century has also undermined the church and people are starting to think about religion in a different way. And they're saying, well, the church did nothing to save us. Our families all died anyway, so what is the point? So you have this um, turn against the clergy and saying it's not the problem with God, it's a problem with the clergy. Why do we have to do what they say? Why are they our conduit to God? Why can't we access God directly? And we have the rise in England of the, the Lollards. And often in these times of stress, things get very polarised. You get people saying, well, we weren't religious enough. We didn't do enough. We didn't worship God enough. He was punishing us. And we are terrible, miserable sinners. And so you get the rise of these religious movements like the flagellants who wander around whipping themselves. So big changes there. And this starts to undermine the authority of the church. And the Pope himself is a controversial figure. And a lot of people are saying the papacy is completely corrupt. You know, you can you can buy your way into that position. And then you are essentially a sort of an, another monarch. You have your own lands, you have your own army, you have huge income because every country and every monarch has to pay a certain amount of money to you, a percentage of their income to the papacy. But these old orders are starting to fall apart. And also, of course, there have been some hugely disruptive and transformative wars 
international ones caused by the rise of nationalism. Europe has developed from being this huge area filled with competing tribes after the collapse of the Roman Empire into being more settled and organised with distinct nations. And once you've taken over all the available land around you and created your borders, you're saying, OK, we are the French, we're the English, we're the Germans, whatever, although confusingly they call themselves the Holy Roman Empire. And we want more influence and power and wealth. We want to be the dominant country. So now we're going to have to expand and try to take over our neighbours' lands. And this leads to these huge wars. Obviously, the most important for England was the Hundred Years' War, this rolling war with France that left France on top and England greatly diminished. But this disruption, this unrest, also leads to internal wars, civil wars. After the Hundred Years' War, England moves seamlessly into the Wars of the Roses. And this disrupts society. A lot of the aristocracy is killed. A lot of the old order is falling apart. New families are coming in. New men are arriving. New ideas. But at the same time, the centres of power, the royal courts, have become bigger, more developed. And the powerful rulers in charge are attracting interesting people from all over the Western world. Artists, musicians, philosophers, clerics, important people are coming to the courts. So they're becoming big centres of learning, of information. And we see this process where people are relearning about the past. And one of the big things that happens that, that speeds up this process is that the Ottoman Turks in the east come up and they overwhelm Byzantium, which is this big centre of Christianity and learning in what is now modern Turkey. And all the Christians that were there flee west and they bring their learning with them and they bring their books with them and they bring their knowledge and their knowledge of science, among other things. And they start to arrive in these Western courts. So we have this huge influx of people and knowledge. And we've had this process since the collapse of the Roman Empire. A lot of that classical knowledge from the Greeks and the Romans starts to be lost. It's preserved in some places, such as Byzantium and in Rome. But in, say, England, the locals, first the Britons, then the Anglo-Saxons, want nothing to do with the Roman legacy. They won't live in these weird stone houses. They go back to houses made of wood and mud and straw. And they turn their backs on the Romans and their culture. I mean, an interesting example of this lost knowledge is concrete. A lot of people think concrete is a modern invention. It's not. The Egyptians used concrete. The Romans used concrete. In fact, they were masters of it. They had a special recipe for making super strong concrete that we still haven't totally rediscovered. We're not quite sure exactly how they did it. The Colosseum in Rome is half built of concrete. And concrete was used during the Middle Ages, but it was of greatly inferior quality. So you can see concrete as this metaphor for lost technological knowledge. And it can also represent the technological renaissance, this rediscovery of Roman ways of doing things. Also, you've had this big, big influence where Christianity takes hold throughout Europe. And they're saying the Romans were pagans, their beliefs were evil, and we want nothing to do with them. So all of this Roman civilization is suppressed and this knowledge is lost. 
All these playwrights, philosophers, politicians, writers, artists, scientists, engineers, all that information and all what these people knew has been suppressed. And you could say lost, but not lost forever. Because now people are questioning the church more and they are interested in the past more and they're looking back and there is a revival of interest in Roman classical knowledge. People start to read these texts from the philosophers and they say, you know, the Romans knew quite a lot. They knew a lot of really interesting stuff. And this leads to a rise in humanism, this idea of putting mankind at the centre of everything rather than God. God is still there up in heaven, but here on earth it is man's kingdom. And so there's this interest in humans now being more at the centre of things. The Old Testament Bible specifically tells humans not to ask questions, but simply to believe in God. Eve is punished for eating the apple of knowledge. She becomes self-aware. But now people are rediscovering the Roman poets and politicians. They're reading speeches made in the Senate. Rome had been a republic, a democracy without a king, until Caesar tore it to pieces. And crucially, they're reading Roman and Greek philosophers. And of course, alongside all this, they're rediscovering all this amazing Roman art and architecture. We tend to believe that history is a, is a sort of long, slow process of things gradually getting better, of everything improving. But if you look at Roman statues, they were incredibly lifelike. And you look at Anglo-Saxon effigies and statues, they're almost like cartoon figures. And you kind of think, but can't you see what people look like? <laughs> Why aren't you able to reproduce that? This knowledge is all lost. But it starts to come back. And, you know, instead of smashing up these statues as the Christians did as being pagan idolatry, people are collecting them, putting them on show. Artists are learning how to copy the techniques. And there is this huge explosion in terms of art and architecture and painting. I mean, one of the huge advances is the understanding of perspective. This idea that in the Middle Ages, if you look at a painting, if one figure is bigger than another, it is because they are more important than that other person. Whereas once you start to use perspective, if one person is bigger than another, it's because they're closer to you, which is how it is in real life. And you wonder how for hundreds of years people couldn't look around them and see, oh yeah, that's what the world looks like. You know, it wasn't art for art's sake. Art was for the glory of God. So it was mainly Christian subjects. And again, you know, if you've got the Virgin Mary there, she's bigger than the shepherds. It wasn't necessarily trying to depict reality. I mean, I love medieval art. I think it, it's beautiful and fascinating. And yeah, as I said, perhaps they weren't trying to be realistic. But the Renaissance brings in this idea of realism. And it also completely opens up what you can do a painting of. Now there are paintings of, of classical subjects from Greek and Roman mythology. And the various monarchs compete to get these artists at their courts. And not just monarchs. In northern Italy, you have these powerful city-states, Venice, Milan, Florence, Rome and the Papal States, with these wealthy, powerful families in charge, all competing for status, like the Medicis and the Borgias. And they want to show off. So there is this explosion. It is a rebirth. It is a renaissance. It is reaching back and grasping this lost 
knowledge and there's a, an amazing flowering of arts and culture and philosophy and science because again science you can gradually wrest it away from the control of of the church they have said the bible is true earth is at the center of the universe up in the sky is heaven but with a lot of this knowledge the scientific knowledge coming from the east people are starting to build telescopes and they're looking up and they're saying well hang about it's a little bit more complicated than that and people like copernicus and galileo are saying, actually, you know what? The universe does not revolve around the Earth. The Earth revolves around the Sun, as do the other planets. And beyond that, the universe is even more interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on out there that is worth studying. And originally, Galileo is arrested and tried as a heretic. But you can't stop the march of knowledge, despite what conspiracy theorists and people on Twitter will try to do today. It's been a massive turn towards flat earth belief recently this idea of like experts are trying to tell us these things they don't know everything i know the real truth it is quite extraordinary you think people have died to get you the truth and now you're turning your back on it and this all makes its way to england it's really interesting if you look at paintings of henry the suddenly you're seeing paintings of a real person and, you know, the big figure at the English court, Henry's court, is Hans Holbein, who's come over from Europe. And suddenly there's a quantum leap in the quality of art and paintings. And you look at Holbein painting you can kind of think, I, I know that person. I know what they're thinking and feeling. They are real. And Henry embraced all this. And there were two centres of the Renaissance. There is Italy, but there is also a Renaissance in Northern Europe sort of based around Germany and particularly the, the low countries. And what's interesting is the Italian Renaissance, despite the fact that it is acknowledging sort of ancient Roman classicism, it still remains very much a Catholic movement. There is no sense of trying to break away from the Pope, whereas in Northern Europe, the Renaissance there becomes very closely connected with the Reformation. We talk about the idea of the, the Renaissance man, and the great examples of this are Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. They're people who are interested in painting, in sculpture, in music, in theatre, in architecture, in Leonardo da Vinci's case, in sort of engineering and designing new weapons and things. And so that idea of someone who is immersed in all this new knowledge of arts and science, that is the Renaissance man. And you can say a lot of things about Henry. You start by saying a good thing about him. He was a Renaissance man. He was a really bright, switched on and interested guy. He wrote a lot. He read a lot. He was interested in all these movements. As I say, he gets people like Holbein to his court. He gets musicians to his court, people like Thomas Tallis. And music is going through an explosion as well. We've had this sort of Gregorian chant system where everyone's just singing in, in unison. But suddenly now we get polyphony. We get the idea of harmony, of musical lines interweaving. And just as art just explodes, so does music. Thomas Tallis, people know mainly now because Vaughan Williams developed one of his uh, themes into his fantastic piece of music. Variations on a theme by Thomas Tallis. And Henry VIII loved music. And Henry VIII wrote music. There is actual sheet music that he wrote. He didn't write green sleeves, as people have liked to claim. But he did write quite a lot of music. And 
funnily enough, if you go to Spotify and put Henry VIII in as an artist, there are quite a few songs there that he wrote. Um, the most famous of which is Pastime with Good Company, which became a kind of pop hit through Europe. And it sums up what Henry was into. He liked hanging out with mates, eating, drinking, listening to music, having fun. And he wrote short books, he wrote treatises on things. He was interested in what was going on in the world. He was much more interested in that than he was with the day-to-day -day business of being a king, of running a country. And, you know, he hadn't been brought up to be a king. His older brother, Arthur, was supposed to rule was supposed to be in our first official King Arthur. So Henry grew up doing other things and became interested in other things. And it didn't really change through his life. The people at his court were always complaining, you know, we, we write these reports for him and he doesn't read them. So we have to sort of pre-see them for him and, and talk him through it, which is exactly like a recent prime minister of ours, Boris Johnson, who wasn't interested in the details. He liked the big picture He's really interesting, Boris Johnson. He wants us to think that he's this sort of Churchillian figure, this great patriotic Englishman who will make England great again. But he's much more like Henry VIII. And Boris Johnson, it was like all he wanted was to be prime minister. And then when he got there, he didn't really know what to do. He didn't have any strong political views, really, apart from a sort of wishy-washy idea of merry old England. And so he was sort of all at sea. And as I say, you know, people were always complaining that he wouldn't do his paperwork. And, uh, you know, Henry VIII also had some similarities with Donald Trump, not just because of his size and his distinctive appearance and his number of wives. Trump famously used to read his paperwork in bed at night while eating a hamburger. And, you know, we can easily imagine Henry VIII doing that. Probably not a hamburger. You know, Trump, again, like Johnson... He likes the trappings of, of being a president, but what does he do with it? Let's just pull things apart for the sake of it. Let's destroy the whole structure and fabric of the country, get rid of the old order, throw some people under a bus, tear down the monasteries so that we can take their wealth, which Henry wanted to do because not only was he trying to promote these foreign wars, he also lived a very extravagant lifestyle. We looked in the previous episode about Henry VII, how he worked really hard to balance the books and he used heavy taxation to stabilise the economy and he left a pretty good amount of money in the treasury for Henry VIII, who pretty much squandered it. He was, as I say, very extravagant. He spent a lot of money on himself and his court and his pleasures. He also wasted a huge amount of money on various costly and largely unsuccessful wars because he wanted to be a king he wanted to be this warrior figure he wanted to go down in history as this great leader of men he wanted to be another richard the first or edward the first or edward the third henry the fifth this is what kings were supposed to do and in his younger days he loved hunting and jousting which is a sort of ersatz warfare it's training for battle and that's how he saw himself and you know he, he's left behind some amazing suits of armor which <laughs> over the years it kept bigger and bigger and bigger to the extent that he got so overweight that they had to invent these various sort of mechanical devices to hoist him up and move him around and get him on his horse and things but he was into the idea of war but he just wasn't particularly good at it 
He did expand the Navy, which worked out well for England in the long run. He was our first monarch to be called King of Ireland in the Crown of Ireland Act of 1542. So now we have Ireland, Wales and England technically all one nation under the king. And obviously there are the two main things that he's known for, which are connected, which is that he had six wives and that he broke the English ties to the papacy. He brought in the Reformation and established Protestantism as the English religion. And the simplified schoolboy version of this is he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon so that he could marry Anne Boleyn, but there was no such thing as divorce at the time. If you wanted to leave someone, you had to get that marriage annulled for technical reasons. And so he went to the Pope to say, can you annul the marriage? The Pope wouldn't annul it. So he said, sod you, I'm not doing what you tell me. I am the head of the English church now. I am cutting all ties with you. It's actually, obviously, a lot more complex than that uh, and a lot more interesting than that. Because actually a big part of him wanting to sever ties with the papacy was so that he could ransack the English church. He could close down the monasteries and the abbeys and he could steal their wealth. And all the money that was usually paid every year to the Pope, he would keep for himself because he had spent everything. So there were strong economic reasons for doing this as well. And as I say, there are also all these philosophical reasons and political reasons for the rise of the Reformation. And of course, sexual reasons. He had the hots for Anne Boleyn and he needed a male heir to secure the shaky Tudor dynasty. So Henry is one of those well-known kings and so much has been written about him. He's been very, very thoroughly studied. So there's this huge amount of information about him. It's interesting if you look at a Wikipedia entry on William the Conqueror. It's not particularly long because there wasn't that much written information about him. Whereas by the time you get to Henry VIII, you've got all these masses of court records, not just in England, but throughout Europe. And so much of it survives to this day. So, you know, you scroll down the Wikipedia entry. It's very, very long. Interestingly, it's not as long as the entry on Wrexham Football Club. <laughs> so, so it seems that people are more interested in Wrexham Football Club than Henry VIII. The football club entries are always very long because it's endless statistics, which certain football fans seem to love studying. And obviously Wrexham recently has become a sort of Hollywood thing uh, with the intervention of Ryan Reynolds. But in the future, when we look back, what will be considered a more important part of history? The results of Wrexham football club's matches or the reign of Henry VIII? We shall see. But what this means for me is... It is just too much information to try and fit into one episode. So I'm going to break my rule of one monarch per episode. But if we look at this as a history of kings and queens, I can fudge it slightly. I'll do this as an introductory episode to Henry VIII. And then the next episode will be based around the six queens that ruled alongside him. And as I said at the beginning, you know, Henry is a very recognisable monarch. There were lots of paintings done of him and people have a strong picture of him in their minds. He's also one of those monarchs who has appeared a lot in popular culture, in novels, films, TV shows. And it's interesting to see how that kind of image of Henry has slightly changed over the years. 
He used to be depicted in films like The the Private Life of Henry VIII with Charles Lawton from 1933 as being this sort of force of nature, lusty and greedy and crapulous, a lovable rogue with an eye for the ladies, a far cry from the intelligent, thoughtful Renaissance man he actually was. And this is pretty much how Sid James played him in Carry On Henry in 1971. A bit of a lad, a bit saucy, a randy old rogue forever trying to ditch the battle-axe wife and get his leg over with Barbara Windsor. He was a fun guy. A great guy with his chopper, as the strapline for the film goes. But even by then, we'd seen more serious portrayals of Henry in A Man for All Seasons and Anne of a Thousand Days, where he was played by Robert Shaw and Richard Burton as a much more serious and conflicted figure, which is also how he was played by Keith Michelle on the BBC in The Six Wives of Henry VIII, as a once powerful and robust figure descending into decrepitude, paranoia and vindictiveness. These screen versions are much more about the court intrigue and Henry's philosophical and religious arguments with his chief ministers and clergymen. And then more recently in series like The Tudors and films like The Other Boleyn Girl, we see the younger Henry, the athletic, dare I say it, sexy Henry, the archetypal dangerous bad boy, the brooding Byronic figure of romantic fiction, prepared to tear the country apart for his passion. Whereas I would say that the consensus now is that he was a misogynist and a psychopath who killed two of his own wives. So that's the fictional Henry. We've always been fascinated by him. But what are the facts? Uh, He was born in 1491. He died in 1547. He was only 56 years old. He died because he was incredibly obese. He'd had a lot of health problems over the years. He famously had this ulcerating leg wound that they could never cure. He had diabetes, and he probably eventually died of kidney failure. He had ruled for 38 years, which wasn't bad. Um, But when he was born, he wasn't the heir to the throne. He was second in line, which made him the Duke of York the famous spare, not expected to be king. And because he wasn't expected to be king, there wasn't much written about his early reign. There's not a lot of information about it. We know he had a good education. He was interested in grammar, poetry, rhetoric and ethics. Later on, he proved to be a very intelligent guy, not the gluttonous oaf uh, that Charles Lawton depicted him as. He spoke French and Latin well. He understood Italian. He learned some Spanish. Um, He was very well read and intellectual. And he was curious about the world around him. He was interested in science and scientific instruments, in maps and astronomy. But that's all to come. As I say, information about his early life is a bit sketchy. And he really properly only enters the history books at his brother Arthur's wedding. As I say, the heir to the throne was Prince Arthur, the golden boy. And Henry is at Arthur's marriage, his big brother's marriage. And, you know, you can picture him cavorting about the place, getting drunk for the first time and being sick in the bushes. So as I say, up to this point, Henry's childhood had been completely overshadowed by his big brother, Arthur, who's five years older than him, fully expected to become king. So there's Henry at the marriage 
leading the procession through the streets of London, uh, expecting to just have a fun life where you can read books and get pissed. But not long afterwards, his brother Arthur dies of probably the sweating sickness, which was this mysterious illness that sprung up at the time and seemed to, interestingly, attack the wealthy and the young more than the poor. But nobody really knows what the illness was and it went away not long after, but it was a bit of a terror at the time. And it killed Arthur as well as many other people through Europe. Now, talking of Europe, I'm going to do another digression here, another history lesson for you, because we need to look at what's going on in Europe because it is key to what happens in Henry's reign. And it is key to his first marriage. So as I've said before, we, we've got these powerful countries that have solidified through the Middle Ages. So we've got England, we've got France, we've got Germany, which is known as the Holy Roman Empire. And we've got in Italy all these various powerful states. Italy was not a country. It was a collection of minor kingdoms like Sicily and Naples and these powerful city-states like Milan and Florence. And we've also got this relatively new power, Venice, over on the northeast coast, which is built out in this marshy lagoon. Um, around about the year 700, the Roman Empire was slightly falling apart and some Roman citizens fleeing from invading Germanic tribes and the Huns started to build this town on stilts in this marshy lagoon where they would be safe from attack. And as a result of this location, they became a very successful maritime power. They were always having to look outwards. And so they expanded through the Mediterranean, taking over other parts of Italy and growing very rich through trade. And for much of the 15th century, we've had these wars in Lombardy, which is just the, the, the sort of northern part of Italy mainly between the Republic of Venice and the Duchy of Milan and their various allies. So by the time Henry comes to the throne, there are these five dominant powers in Italy. Venice, Milan, Florence, the Papal States and Naples. But no sooner have the wars in Lombardy settled down when we get a larger war over Italy itself, which in the way of these things spreads into the rest of Europe as the various major powers, fearful that the Italians will grow too strong, try to take over. So everybody is fighting everybody else for dominance in the region. The Holy Roman Empire, the French, the Italians, the Pope and his armies, and even Spain. And the English don't really get a look in during the Italian wars, but Henry does keep trying to have a pop at France. Now, the other thing that's going on is we have the rise of the Ottoman Empire expanding in the east under Islam. But they largely keep out of the Italian wars. They're more interested in Eastern Europe and coming up sort of through Hungary towards Austria. But the one area of influence that Henry can get involved in is support of the Pope. The Pope is a religious leader, but he's also a political figure and a military figure. All of the various heads of state want to try to keep the Pope on side. And it's interesting. When you look at why the Pope didn't grant Henry an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, it was largely because he thought Henry was doing it for political reasons and wanted to sort of sideline 
his alliance with Spain through Catherine, and build a new alliance with one of the Pope's enemies in Europe with a new marriage, possibly to someone within the Holy Roman Empire. So we'll backtrack a bit to the time of Henry VII. He's king of England. We've got Louis XII, king of France, who is a big friend of Henry and a supporter and who financed his um, invasion of England when he went to take over from Richard III. The Pope at the time is Julius II, and he's succeeded by Leo X. And the Holy Roman Emperor, essentially the king of Germany, is Maximilian. And Maximilian is a Habsburg. Now, you, like me, have probably heard Habsburg's being thrown into historical documentaries over the years and thought, I really must find out who the hell the Habsburgs were. So there are originally this Swiss family who expanded into Austria, where they took power and essentially became rulers of the Holy Roman Empire. And they're pretty tough, a powerful, clever bunch, forever expanding the territories of the Holy Roman Empire. They go into the Low Countries, the Netherlands, Flanders, Belgium, and they become as large and as powerful in Europe as the French. And the Habsburg in charge there at the end of Henry VII's reign is Emperor Maximilian. So Henry has got to keep Maximilian happy. He's got to keep the Pope happy. He's got to keep King Louis happy. And they're constantly making these kind of alliances and trying to marry members of their family off to each other. But we also have this growing power in Spain. Now, Spain, apart from a thin strip along northern Spain, Aragon and Castile, Spain has not really engaged in European politics because for 700 years it's been under Muslim occupation. Pretty much the whole of Spain and Portugal has been ruled by the Moors, as they were known. And they didn't want to push up into France and, and open a whole new can of worms. They stayed there and they looked south and east to the rest of the Muslim territories around the Mediterranean and North Africa and in the Middle East. By 1490, their power had diminished. And after a series of wars, the whole of the Iberian Peninsula returned to local Christian rule and the Moors were essentially kicked out. So within Spain, the same as within Italy and within France, you have these powerful regions. You have Castile, Aragon, the likes of Leon, Granada, Cordoba, Valencia. But now they are united into one entity. And for the first time, we have the country of Spain. And this is largely down to these two key figures, Ferdinand and Isabella. Ferdinand was the ruler in Aragon and Isabella was the ruler in Castile. And they married, became this power block and essentially united the whole of Spain. So the first time they're calling themselves King of Spain. And they are both in their own right, these enormously influential and dominant figures. It's under Ferdinand and Isabella that Spain starts to conquer South America. They finance Columbus. They send him to the New World. They start to build an empire there. They're not pushing up into France. It's like, we're going west. We're going to America. And so they suddenly start to become incredibly wealthy, which only adds to their power. It is Ferdinand and Isabella who set up the Spanish Inquisition. And I'm not going to say that it was unexpected. It was set up originally to deal with this issue of Christianizing Spain the Muslims were given an offer. Convert to Christianity, you can stay. If you want to remain a Muslim, 
you can go. They did the same with the Jews. Convert or go. And the Inquisition was set up to check that those Muslims and those Jews who had claimed to convert to Christianity really were Christians. So they were testing that and they were putting people on trial. But that was essentially what the Inquisition was all about. So as I say, we've got this new power block, Spain under Ferdinand and Isabella. And they have two important daughters. The first of them is Joanna, who subsequently became known as Joanna the Mad. And they married Joanna to the son of Maximilian, who was called Philip, Philip Habsburg, thus uniting Spain and the Habsburgs of Northern Europe, which massively increases the power of the Habsburgs. And because we have this idea of primogeniture, of the monarchy passing down through the male line, Philip is now in line to be king of Spain. And he is the founder of the Habsburg dynasty in Spain that ruled there for 200 years. The Habsburg Empire eventually rules half of Europe and doesn't fully disintegrate until the mid-19th century. And Spain was a big part of it. So all of these monarchs who end up in dispute with, say, Elizabeth, where we have another King Philip of Spain, these are Habsburgs. And famously, there was a lot of inbreeding in the dynasty. They didn't want to marry outwards, and it led to a lot of congenital defects. Famously, the Habsburg jaw, this huge elongated chin that you can see getting bigger and bigger in each successive portrait of a Habsburg monarch, whether they're in Spain or in Germany. I mean, it is downplayed in the portraits, but you can still see evidence of it. And in some of the Habsburgs, it was so bad that they couldn't properly close their jaws and had trouble eating and even speaking. If anyone tells you that this is the cause of the northern Spanish lisping thing, where they pronounce uh, words like cerveza, uh, that's an urban myth, but a fun one. Philip doesn't live long. He dies. Joanna goes mad with grief, or at least that's the story her father puts about because he wants her out of the way. She's put in a nunnery. And Philip and Joanna's son, Charles, becomes heir to the throne. And in fact, he does eventually take over from Philip as king of Spain. Their other daughter is a girl called Catherine. And Henry VII is looking around for someone to marry his son, Arthur, to. And he thinks, aha, the Spanish are a big new power player in all of this. I will marry Arthur to Catherine, Catherine of Aragon. And that's how she enters the history of England. She marries Arthur and everything's looking great. Although, as I say, we have this terrible tragedy. Arthur drops dead. Suddenly, Henry is heir to the throne. Henry VII is still ruling at the time. He's thinking, Christ, I'm up shit creek here. I've gone to all this effort to make this great political marriage. My son's gone and died. What if she goes back to Spain? marries someone else? What if she goes to France, marries the son of the French king? Uh, we need to keep this alliance going. And he announces that she's now going to marry his second son, Henry. Henry does not like this idea. As I say, he, he was a religious man and he's read various bits of the Bible that seem to be telling him you're not allowed to marry your brother's sister. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to marry Catherine. I don't want anything to do with this. It'll be a sin. So Henry Seventh is trying to push it young Prince Henry is pushing against it. And this is still not resolved when Henry VII dies. Henry still hasn't married Catherine of Aragon. 
he comes to the throne and suddenly he has a change of heart and he says, okay, I will marry her. And I'm going to talk about that with my guests. Yes, guests, plural, an exciting development. But I'll come to them in just a moment. And just before that, I'm sorry if there've been a lot of digressions in this episode, but there was just so much interesting stuff going on in Europe at the time, stuff that had a direct impact on Henry's reign, but which we don't really hear much about in most of the dramatizations of his story, which tend to focus on his personal life and his relationship with his wives and the powerful men around him at his court. You certainly get none of this in Carry On Henry, a great guy with his chopper. But I think it's important to see that there was a lot more going on in Henry's life than just his wives, who we'll come on to properly in the next episode. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As I say, I'm going to talk through this early part of Henry's life with my two guests. I'm delighted to be joined by the historical power couple, John Guy and Julia Fox, a husband and wife team who between them have written many books on Henry VIII and the Tudors. Most recently, they co-wrote Hunting the Falcon, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn and the Marriage that Shook Europe. And I'm going to get John and Julia back on the next episode to look at Henry's wives. But John, Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's marvellous to have you here and it's marvellous to have two guests on at once uh, and two guests who are so closely linked to each other. I mean, I mean, how does it work jointly writing a book? Well, put it this way, we're still married. <laughs> so it works. <laughs> Neither has filed for divorce. Um, do you want to explain, John, how in fact I think we, it's worked for a long time that people don't really know about? Yeah, mm. I think we both um, researched really the whole book. Mm. And then we do focus each on particular passages. Yeah. We each write our contributions, which might be half a chapter or a whole chapter. We each read the other's work and then you know, we revise it you know, yeah. to and fro. And then finally, one of us tops and tails it. But we've done this for years, actually. I think this it's, is it's, a, it's a trade yeah. secret. Uh, Julia has in the past written a whole chapter of one of my books and nobody noticed. And I've written <laughs> one of her books and nobody noticed. And, <laughs> you know, we've done the odd bit of each other's journalism and um, it just works fine. I suppose there may be some people out there with the terribly sexist view that, John, you do all the battles and the armour. And, <laughs> and Julia, you do all the... I do the soft bits. All the girly stuff, all the weddings and the marriages. <laughs> well, I do do some weddings and marriages. I mean, that is absolutely true. But I think I, I think I go a little bit deeper here and there, you know. 
it yeah. might end up. Yeah. You see, I think people would probably think that, you know, in the new book on say on, on Henry and Anne Boleyn, that um, Julia did much of the stuff on Anne and I wrote the stuff on Henry. But in fact, actually, I mean, one of the features of that book, uh, something that was really quite new, was to focus on the backstories of these mm. two people. But in fact, Julia did Henry's backstory and I did Anne's backstory, which is the sort of the flip side of what one might expect. Yes. And then you did Henry's love letters to Anne, didn't you, mainly? And Anne's letters from the tower. I um, did. And I did a lot of the I did a lot of the international relations and that, that uh, is true. research in the in the French archives. I mean, I do like reading the letters. Um, mm. That's nothing to do with the fact that you know I'm a woman. Well, you, you did Catherine of Aragon as well, didn't you? I um, did. I did, although she wrote quite a lot at the beginning because she was uh, forever complaining about her lot in life. Uh, no woman on earth could be as hard done by as Catherine of Aragon between the death of Arthur and her marriage to Henry. You know, she was very, 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 very unhappy. She was really hard done by and it wasn't fair. <laughs> uh, and you just think, hang on, lady, you know, <laughs> there are some women in the field at the moment. There are some people who can't feed their children. So just tone it down a little. It's interesting talking about uh, Catherine because, Julia, in 2011, you published Sister Queens, which yes. is a dual biography of Catherine of Aragon and her sister. How is it pronounced? Joanna? Well, Juana? I would just say Juana. Juana. Uh, I think it's Juana. Who was known... Uh, well, I've slightly dismissed her as the mad queen, yes. Joanna of Castile, who is less well known in this country. But we were talking about backstory. Uh, I think that whole relationship with Spain is really interesting and is key to a lot of what happened in Henry's reign. Absolutely it is, because you have to remember that our natural alliance tended to be with the Habsburgs not with the French. We were forever fighting the French. Yeah. I mean, you know, the prospect of a war really excited English nobles who thought, oh, jolly good, we can go over to France for a spot of pillage. You know, they keep all the, the old traditions up. And you have to remember that a lot of our trade went through Antwerp. Right. And Antwerp, of course, Habsburg possession. So the Spanish alliance, the Habsburg alliance, is very, very central to us. And it's actually central to the new book that we've written too, because what we found was that the story of Henry and Anne maps on really closely to the way in which international relations change. We're mm. friendly with France, Anne's on the up. We're not friendly with France, Anne's on the down. Ah, uh, that's really interesting. Because Henry's reign really has a sort of symmetry. I mean, the crowning achievement of his father's foreign policy was this, you know, sort of Burgundian alliance, which became an imperial alliance, which became a Spanish alliance because the Habsburgs effectively inherited Flemish Burgundy, and then, of course, um, Philip the Handsome and yes, inherited, inherited, um, it, uh, and then Charles V inherited Spain. So Henry VIII begins his reign, if you like, pally um, with the, um, the imperialists, uh, pally with the Habsburgs. Yeah. Uh, and then, because of things that happen in Italy, suddenly Charles V becomes incredibly powerful, so he dumps Henry. Uh, and then Henry says, well, sod that for a game of soldiers and, and allies with, mm. the, with the French, which is when, of course, Anne Boleyn suddenly becomes suddenly noticed this, this, this sort of yeah. the star woman and his in yeah. the trophy wife in his life, uh, but also the woman who's invested in his enterprise which is now this yeah. French alliance. Yeah. But then, of course, after Anne's death, well, then basically they dump, they largely dump the French 
and go back to the imperial um, <laughs> axis. And yep. then, of course, in the 1540s, you know, when Henry's married to, you know, his last couple of queens, mm-hmm. Henry's then fighting the French, uh, trying to win territory again in France in, in yeah. alliance with the Habsburgs. Yeah. Because it doesn't end terribly well. And it costs an absolutely an army. Oh, and actually wrecks, it wrecks the finances of the country for basically the next 200 years. <laughs> uh, and all the loot from the all the loot from the monasteries yeah. is uh, swallowed up, really. swallowed up yeah. in these in, in, in these campaigns. Yeah, and, and and you know, in all the sort of popular dramatizations, uh, we only really see Henry VIII in the context of his domestic dramas, and we don't. Yes, uh, well, you know, there isn't space to explain all that. That um, that it is part of a much bigger picture and I think it's really interesting that the the subtitle of Hunting the Falcon is Henry VIII Anne Boleyn and the marriage that shook Europe the fact yes. that it, this is not just a domestic thing that's going on no here. it isn't mm. I mean it was a romance very much played out in in public I mean when Anne died in 1536 when the executioner literally slices off her head because that's what you do with a sword mm. I mean it swishes through the air it's so chilling even today that was the brutal end. But she died in public too. Yeah, I suppose not just the, the, the crowd at the tower, but the whole of Europe is watching. The, the Pope, the Habsburgs under Charles, France under Francis. I mean, I, I guess all wondering where this is going to go and how it will affect their balance of power. In a way, they were equally matched. Um, Francis um, probably had more realisable money faster, but mm. Charles had sort of bigger armies that yeah. he could master. Yeah. Mm. And Charles had the problem of Luther and the Reformation in Germany. But Henry could, tip, Henry could tip the scales, so he could punch above his weight. He was also usually solvent because he could raise taxation even faster and in greater amounts than anyone yeah. else. But of course, then he got these big sort of megalomaniac ideas. I mean, he did develop into this sort of great narcissist and egoist. And, and but a lot of that was there from the beginning. Things. But people think he broke with Rome. And people, I mean, during the Brexit, um, you know, sort of business, then um, <laughs> people, you know, I mean, the Brexiteers looked to Henry who'd broken with Europe. And he had not broken with Europe. He'd broken with the Pope. Yes. After his break with Rome, he envisaged an even greater role for himself in Europe as some sort of patriarch of Christendom, in which he would sort of be like a sort of great arbitrator overseeing the whole of international affairs in the European world. Yeah. And that seems sort of slightly vain on Henry's part, that he that he wasn't really a big international player, but he wanted to be. I mean, did anyone, how seriously was he taken by these other rulers? Oh, very seriously, I think he's taken by the other rulers. Well, they're taking you very seriously. Because- they want his money. <laughs> but I think that sort of narcissistic yes. idea was there from the beginning. I mean, he's brought up, as you know, largely by his mother. He's the boy amongst a a very much female environment. Mm. And his mother molly coddles him a bit, but gives him the sort of unconditional love that he always wants and always searches for. Absolutely. And and how old was he when his mother died? He's about 11, isn't he? 11, maybe coming up to 12. And he said it was the worst day of his life. And if, if anybody spoke about it later in his life, he was still desperately upset. I think the thing is that if you're, if you're the second son, yeah. if, you're the, if you're the first son, you're, you're given a male household immediately, yes. sort of brought up with male tutors and top people and, and all of that. If you're the second son, you can stay among the women in sort of the mother's side of the queen's side of the household. You know, I mean, Henry was brought up with his sisters, you know, up to the age of, well, 11, wasn't he? He was, he was still 
because because Erasmus of Rotterdam, you know, the great yeah. European scholar, paid him a visit just to see what he was like, and he later wrote this little book in praise of Henry. But what he says is, you know, you're going to be you're going to be a great chap. You know, I mean, basically, you're going to reach the heights of fame. And this is this he he'd seen something in that young man. But it was also said later about Henry that he you know he loved being among women because he brought up among women and, he, and that familiarity. You know, he was really happiest when he was around women. Right, he was brought up being told that he was the best, and so that's what he was going to be. What cuts across that is that. The Tudors throughout his father's reign were still very insecure. Mm. And people think that, oh, he'd won the Battle of Bosworth, you know, he'd ruled for 20 odd years, you know, he's got his feet under the table, the dynasty's secure. The way they thought about these things and the way that the young Henry thought about it, actually, and this is sort of in a way the key to how the reign starts to move, uh. is that you're only actually secure when the heir has himself married uh, and had children. Yes, and and there seems to be a lot of change in Europe where, where some of these dynasties are only producing female heirs who are then marrying a male heir from a different dynasty and the husband's side essentially takes over. I think this is what happens in Burgundy, isn't it, which becomes part of the Habsburgs' empire. So now the Habsburgs have Germany and Flanders, the Low Countries, Belgium, and it also happens the same way in Spain where Philip the Handsome... Another Habsburg marries Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter, Juana, sister of Catherine of Aragon. Because this was the problem with a female monarch. Yes. The woman marries. Her husband is going to expect to be king. Mm. And that happens here a lot. When Juana inherits Spain, Philip yeah. is king of Spain. I mean, it happens here, say, with Lady Jane Grey. When she married Guilford Dudley. He thought he was going to be King Guildford mm. and actually at one point went on a sex strike because <laughs> the whole point of a marriage is to have a child. Mm. Well, if he won't, you know, do the business, you know, there ain't going to be no dynasty lady. Mm. He held firm. I mean, this is probably the reason, well, I mean, I think. Yeah. It's the reason Elizabeth never married. Yes. If she'd, if she'd married, uh, yes. if she'd married yes. the husband would demand to be king. Mary, Queen of Scots, married. She married the, a second husband. She married Henry, Lord Dudley. Yes. He immediately demanded to be king. Yes. And then it all hell broke out. Yeah. So to get back to Henry, we have the European rulers jostling for power and trying to take over Italy. But Henry doesn't seem to get directly involved in the Italian wars. Henry's a little bit cagey. I mean, he sends quite a lot of money. He does, but he doesn't really send an army, does he? No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't send an army. So in terms of sending an army, he does the English thing, really, of just constantly trying to attack the French. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> well, mostly from the north, but not that occasionally. That's very uh, early in the reign, there's, a, there's an attempt to um, should come from the south, yeah. right at the beginning of the reign, 1511 and 1512. Um, and so, what, so what is he hoping to achieve in that? I mean, he must know he can't sort of depose the French king. Is it, is it as you said before, is it sort of raiding parties? Is it pillaging? No, it's a bit more than that. I mean, he does think at one point that he could depose Francis, doesn't he? Ah, yes. King Louis Twelfth of France, who's the one before Francis I, calls a schismatic council of the church uh, at, at Pisa. And, and Henry is outraged by this. Henry, at the beginning of his reign, sees himself as, the, as a Catholic champion mm. uh, and wants to get a papal title. And in fact, Pope Julius II sort of half agrees to strip the French king of the title of both Christian king and give it to Henry. 
But later, Henry gets ambitions. What he wants to do is he wants to do what Henry V had done. Yeah. He wants to march on Paris. He wants to be crowned King of France. Yeah, and so he needs the support of Catherine's family, who are now the Habsburgs in Spain, but, but also he needs the support of Ferdinand and Isabella and Maximilian to do that, presumably. Well, and it's Maximilian. Maximilian. It's the Maximilian. Maximilian he's, the, he's the one whose support he, he wants yeah. and he gets. Yes. At least he gets for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, so that in the big campaign, I mean, Henry's sort of very big um, campaign, which he led, you know, personally uh, in 1513, that's in alliance with Maximilian. And I mean, they do ride out together and, you know, I mean, they, I mean, they capture um, Tournay and, mm. and Terouan. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, later Thomas Cromwell, I mean, Henry's second minister describes them as those places as ungracious dog holes, but actually <laughs> that's a little bit cheeky because they were important symbolically to Henry. They'd sort of featured in the Hundred Years' War, at least Terouan mm, had featured yeah. in the Hundred Years' War. Uh, but they, but both those towns were very important to Maximilian. But it's hardly a conquest of France, though, is it? I mean, it's... Not completely, no. And the other big thing that's going on through all of this, while everybody's at war, is the start of the Reformation. Now, is there any reason why it kicked off so strongly in Northern Europe? I mean, is it largely down to the influence of this one man, of, of Martin Luther? I think the key thing is that Martin Luther not only finds his voice in Wittenberg, but he finds the printing press. Yes. Right. And he's a great writer. I mean, Luther yes. is a fabulous writer, and he's a prolific writer. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's the sort of person, you know, who'll write 2,000 words a day and, you know, before breakfast and then, you know, <laughs> continue later if he, you know, if, he, if he wants to. You know, and there's no doubt, once those things are printed, I mean, they're in Paris in, a, you know, a couple mm -hmm. of weeks later. Um, they get to London, they get, they get all around Europe. I mean, Henry, of course, at this time, absolutely is playing the card of the loyal son of the church. I mean, yeah. he describes himself as the Pope's loyal son. He sends Cordish tin, actually, yeah. for the roof of the new St. Peter's Basilica. <laughs> the Pope sends um, palmers and cheese, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I haven't really gone into Luther, but I mean, essentially, he's this German priest who has a strong dislike of the Pope, and he becomes, I guess, the, the focal point of of the reformation people were angry and they wanted change well he voiced it i suppose he voiced it didn't he really and mm. um, printed it mm. um but there were plenty of others i mean obviously you've got calvin mm. so what sort of a man was martin luther he was brash. Yeah. He was foul-mouthed wasn't he suffered terribly from constipation <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That would be because of his diet of worms. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's one of the few things that I remember from childhood and people do, but I really have no idea what it really means. It's, it's not even pronounced diet, I, I think. Is it, is it a diet or something? Probably not. Probably not. It's a conference. Yeah, it's, it's a just conference. a conference. Right. Yes, sadly, it's not a, a plate of worms. Um, but is it all him? No, I mean, he, uh, there's a lot of disquiet. In France, I mean, the Jacques Lefebvre de Chapel is a whole yes. French school of reformers. And um, yeah, I mean, the yeah. reformers, there are even some reformers in Italy, although they get squashed, you know, squashed very quickly. Okay, so now I'm going to properly look at the Reformation in the next episode. So if it's okay, we'll leave that to one side for the moment. And I, and I, and I want to just look a little bit at Henry's character. Some historians say that it changed when he was unseated during a tournament soon after the death of Catherine Aragon and he hit his head. But others say, no, 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 he was always paranoid and narcissistic. 
Yes, the narcissism starts when he's younger. Yes, the insecurity starts when he's he's younger. Yes, he sees how his father rules through fear. Mm. And you can see the way he's going to develop very, very early on. There's not some great Damascene, the, the equivalent of a Damascene conversion in reverse <laughs> later on, where this wonderful, glorious man becomes suddenly horrid. You can see it all there. And the paranoia, I guess you could say it was justified. When he was a child, I mean, he was six years old, rebels were marching on London and he was taken by his mother to the safety of the tower. That you will remember. Mm. Um, and throughout his life, he remembered that and the fact that there were plots uh, against Henry the Seventh. In 1521, he has the Duke of Buckingham executed on really trumped up treason charges. He even coached the witnesses and because he thought Buckingham was too powerful. Mm. And plotting. He suspected uh, and he, he was plotting. He was yeah. plotting. Suspicion with that. Um, and he was, he was madly, madly rich. He's the only man in England who could pay fortunes for a haircut. <laughs> it was incredibly yeah. wealthy. But this is where Henry's childhood comes in and yeah. his teenage years because Henry VII had won the Battle of Bosworth. He'd stayed on the throne for just 20 plus years. But in their terms, you're not actually totally secure until the heir has himself married and had a son, which is why yeah. Henry makes this very impetuous marriage to, you know, to Catherine um, at a very early age. And it's, you know, she, she turns out to be the wrong woman for him. And um, although he begins triumphantly because you know, a couple of years into the marriage, there's a son, but he only lives for a, you know, really a few, few days. But Henry's psyche is cut across by the fact that you know, we recognize him as probably the most powerful king of England that ever was and ever will be. But actually, he, much of the time, he felt deeply insecure. Yeah. He never felt totally secure. And that's a psychological thing, which I think goes back to this childhood. Correct me if I'm wrong, but did he not originally oppose a marriage to Catherine of Aragon? It wasn't instant, was it? It was only when he came to the throne. Was it that he suddenly needed to marry someone at them? Why when the change of mind? When he comes to the, the throne, Catherine is available. Mm. She's here. There's a dowry paid, which you know nobody really wants to hand over, hand back. <laughs> um, and she comes from fecund stock. Right. Um, one of her sisters, the one I didn't write about, Marie, uh, Maria of Portugal, had 17 children. <laughs> she was filling her nursery, you know, faster than they could make cribs, practically. Juana. Charles's mother had, I think it was either five or six children before she died. Mm. Then there was no reason to think that Catherine wouldn't uh, do the business very quickly. So, so, but why had he been opposed to it in the first place? Then? Well, he wasn't necessarily. Right. When Arthur died, it was a nice, easy solution to betroth Catherine to Henry. Fine. But what happens is that Spain might have collapsed. Spain was united in the sense that Isabella of Castile married Ferdinand of Aragon. But Ferdinand had Aragon, Isabella had Castile. There was no such thing as Spain as such. And it was quite likely that when Isabella died, which she did in 1504, Spain would divide. And suddenly, Catherine is no longer quite such a catch right okay. and so eventually henry 
worries about this, thinks about this, pulls well, back. Well, there is a there is this betrothal between Henry and Catherine, but of course, the church law then was that a woman could marry at twelve, but a boy not till fourteen. And Henry is not fourteen. Right. Okay. And on the eve of his fourteenth birthday, his father tells him to pull out of it, and he has to read this, okay. um, you know, this declaration pulling out of this. But then, after Henry's father's death in the fifteen oh nine, when Henry becomes king, as we've said, he makes this impulsive decision. To make himself totally secure, he needs to marry and have a son. Catherine's available. She's she's right. around. Um, Henry has conflicting stories to tell. Yes. On one day, you know, on Monday, he says it was his father's wish that he should Death marry Catherine. Around deathbed wish he should <laughs> marry Catherine. On another day, he says, "I'm madly in love with her." You know, I mean, you know, um, it's one thing to Prince Charles saying, you know, whatever love is, when you know, <laughs> in that famous interview when he was engaged to, to Diana. And so, actually, Henry's not quite sure why he's doing this, I think, but so he's got these two stories. And then there's also, in the background, there's two conflicting opinions on whether he actually can marry Catherine anyway, legally. Mm. Almost mm. all this comes up again later when Henry wants to marry Anne. Mm. But, I mean, you're absolutely right, Charlie, to say that the whole nature of the decision to marry Catherine exposes some sort of deep element of Henry's character. Mm. And of course, then later it leads to the midlife crisis, and he sets eyes on. Um, and the only thing is that you know, as we discovered, and as we've been you know sort of telling our readers in the, in the in the new book, what's really surprising about that moment is that Anne had been back at the English court for over four years before Henry actually takes up with her, or even particularly notices her. Uh, and of course, the reason for that is that's the moment when he's been dumped by Charles V and dumped by Spain and the imperialists. And the Habsburgs, and he's going to ally with um, with France, and so and suddenly Anne is, you know, she's all things French, she's everything French. So she's the woman of the moment. Yes, you 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 focus in your book, don't you, about how she spent several years at the French court and had strong ties with France, which we'll come onto more in the next episode. So, as I say, as long as Henry is wanting to woo the French and shun the Habsburgs, he's wanting to woo Anne, and when Henry falls out with the French and wants to side with the Habsburgs again, Anne is out of favour. As I said in my talk earlier, you don't get any of this in Carry On Henry. <laughs> or, or really, actually, in most dramatisations. I, mean, I, mean, I also mentioned the Charles Lawton film, The Private Life of Henry VIII, in which he's this oafish, lecherous old goat gnawing on chicken legs and chucking the bones over his shoulder. I mean, he, was a, he was a more complex man than he's often portrayed, wasn't he? Yes. I mean, I think that's true, didn't you? Well, Certainly. a lot of things were happening. I mean, the Reformation and the commercial sphere. Yeah. I mean, in, in 2019, I wrote this book on Thomas Gresham, so I suddenly discovered about the world of credit brokering, yeah. merchants and luxury goods and discovery and exploration. And I mean, Henry was interested in, in maps. He was interested in charts. He was interested in the Navy. He was interested in clocks. He loved mechanical devices. Mm. He loved executive mm. toys for his mm. desk. <laughs> um, he loved opulent tapestries. He was a, you know, he was an art connoisseur. He was not in the league of uh, Wolsey or um, anything like that. Um, I mean, he was a, col a collector. He had yes. prodigious. I mean, the inventory of the property that he owned after yeah. his death is absolutely prodigious. He liked building. Uh, he'd been taught that by Wolsey, but he'd also been taught it by Anne Boleyn, of course. You know, who um, was largely responsible for the redesign of, of Whitehall Palace. I mean, Anne Boleyn is responsible largely for St. James's Palace because that was going to be the place where the son that she and Henry had was going to hold court. Uh, there's a, even a fireplace there with her initials still um, yeah. on it. 
uh, which is one of one of the sort of few surviving um, bits mm. of Anne that sort of escaped the cull after uh, her falls. I mean, my first job, when my first sort of um, sort of in between job after getting my PhD was in what's now the National Archives, which was then in Chancery Lane and not at Kew. But I know that you know those were the days when um, before electronic security and sort of computerized locks and and all of that. Uh, and um, you could wander into the strong rooms and you could go into the room where Henry's state papers were and you could see that um, they start, you know, just a sort of one volume a year or mm. one and a half volumes a year. And by the end of Henry's reign, you're mm. getting sort of 10, 15 mm. volumes. Uh, this, the incremental amount of paper bureaucracy, mm. information gathering, partly as a result of the Reformation, a partly of the invention of printed forms that you could do printed questionnaires and get answers. Um, the birth of bureaucracy. Things that we associate yeah. with the 20th century, yeah. 21st century, those, all those things are starting up. It gets even bigger in Elizabeth's reign. Yeah. And, um, one historian could just about read everything for Henry in a lifetime. <laughs> you could read everything for, say, Edward IV, probably in about you know seven years, six years. Uh, but the Hannah Barians, you'd be reading six months, I would have thought, in you know, the best part of 20 years. Gosh. We're not going to try it. No, <laughs> neither am I. I will stick with my superficial version of history. But thank you so much for joining me to talk through Henry VIII. Very welcome. We've enjoyed it. And in our next episode, we'll pick up with what happens after Catherine of Aragon, which you look at in your new book, Hunting the Falcon, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn and the marriage that shook Europe. So that was Julia Fox and John Guy. And as I say, we'll be hearing more from them in the next episode when we look at the final 14 years of Henry's life. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.